What comes to mind when you think of films like Braveheart, Gladiator, or my favorite, the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Yes, these are stories full of love and friendship and camaraderie. And these movies tell all fantastic stories that leave us sitting on the edge of our seats. We, we want to know how it ends. We want to know what happens next. But let's be honest. We're not watching Gladiator for love. We're not watching Lord of the Rings for the, the deep interpersonal relationships. We're, we're not watching Braveheart to, well, there is a little love, but we're not watching it for that. We're watching it for those epic battle scenes, aren't we? What most of us remember are those scenes, and they're fun to watch because they're so realistic, and the ones that are realistic we know take a lot of work to get it that way. In The Two Towers, the, the second of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, an epic battle happened that took months to film. The Battle of Helm's Deep clocked in at almost 40 minutes inside this movie, making it almost a movie in itself. There's an intensity to the fighting that happens as the rain keeps coming down and the, the battle keeps happening and, and the bad guys seem to be winning and they, they win over and over and over again until the very end. There's something special about that. We appreciate the, the choreography that goes into it and the, the CGI and, and all of the work that goes into making something so epic. There's something special about watching a realistic battle scene. But in the movies and in real life, there are always reasons why these sides go to war. That's why you don't have a movie of just battle scenes. It has to have something that leads up to that battle, something that causes that war to happen. Often it's over land. One nation has a historical claim to the land and another nation resides in it, and so they fight over it. Sometimes it's natural resources. Other times, one side will attack the other side for past grievances, sometimes going decades or centuries back. You know the story of Braveheart. It's not based entirely in reality, but in the movie, the Scottish people were being abused by the English, and so they rebelled. In the Lord of the Rings, an evil spirit was attempting to overtake the entire world, so the good guys banded together and they fought. But many wars or conflicts in history have begun over much, much less. In the extreme upper northwest where uh, Washington State meets Canada, um, there is a strange dividing line between the two countries. The San Juan Islands, now part of the United States, was once shared by the U.S. and by British employees of the Hudson Bay Company. Both countries claimed the Northwest Island as their own, which caused tensions in the region. And in June of 1859, an American farmer shot a British boar, a giant pig, because that boar was tearing up the man's potato crops. So the British forces come in and arrest that farmer. U.S. Army hears about it, and they send George Pickett, if you know from Pickett's Charge from Gettysburg, they send George Pickett out to the Pacific Northwest to deal with this. And so they claim that island is American property. Now you can see how international relations are tense now. The British weren't happy, so they decided to send the Royal Navy. The standoff lasted weeks, and most people thought that a war would come, but it ended peacefully. At the root of the war, the battle or 
possible war was a pig. All over a pig could have been international tension. See, the sinful human condition is to fight whenever we don't get what we want. In our text today, that's what's happening. One side who happens to be a bully felt slighted by the other. In more modern terms, the bully was disrespected by the one being bullied. And so the bully fights. We don't get what we want or what we think we deserve, so we resort to violence to get it. And while this passage may be seen as the heroism of Abram, God uses this situation, a difficult situation, an unpleasant situation, for his own glory. If you've been with us through our study of Genesis, I hope that you've seen how God always uses the failings and the frailties of humanity to accomplish his ends. He uses our sin. He doesn't advocate for it and doesn't allow it to go unpunished, but he does use it for his glory, does he not? Just the genealogy of Jesus that we've previously studied, it would be problematic if God didn't use sinful people to accomplish his goals. Because every name in that list except for Jesus is a sinner, but God used every one of those people to push his plan forward. And this is how God's always operated using sinful people to bring himself glory, and our passage today is no different. It's a difficult passage. It's a passage, especially the first part of chapter 14, it's a passage that needs a lot of context to understand fully what the Scripture's talking about. But let me give you a recap. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God calls Abram to himself. He calls him to leave his home and to live in a land that was promised to him. When Abram and his wife Sarai go into Egypt, uh, Abraham was worried, so he said that Sarai was his sister, not his wife, and so she was brought into the Pharaoh's home. Abram was given livestock and servants by Pharaoh, but when it was shown that Abram was lying to the Pharaoh, brought afflictions from God, and Abram was sent away. And then in chapter 13, Abram realizes the error of his ways, goes back to the mount where he had built a, 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 an altar, and he worshiped God correctly. His relationship with his creator had been restored, and Abram was spiritually doing really well. And then they come to a place in the land where they both could not live together. And so rather than Abram claiming all the land, Abram shows grace to Lot and says, Lot, you pick and I'll take the other. And so Lot looks around and, and he sees, and he sees the, the bright lights and the, the green fields of Sodom, and he says, that's what I want. And so Abram goes in the other direction. Abram showed Lot grace in letting him choose when Lot didn't deserve it. And we saw how Abram points us to Christ as his generosity foreshadows the infinitely greater grace that God gives to his people when we turn and we trust in Jesus as our Savior. See, Abram's generosity toward Lot created a peace between the two. Their men were fighting. Their, their people could not cohabitate together in the same land. And so Abram and Lot created this peace. Abram settled in Hebron, which is uh, a city in Palestine now, in the West Bank, about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Lot originally settled near Sodom, and, and we'll get to Sodom as the chapters unfold in Genesis, but Lot settled near Sodom, but now he had actually made his way into the city. 
There's a difference, by the way, if someone says they live in New Jersey or New York. You have to say what part. Because if you just go a little further out, it's a different world. And so Lot had moved from the outskirts of the city, relatively safe, I suppose. He moved from the outskirts of the city, and he was drawn in. So now he is fully immersed in the culture of Sodom. Now to help you understand what's going on here, um, this is important to understand. Sodom had, uh, it was a group of five smaller cities that kind of comprised themselves to, to make the one big idea of Sodom. Each city had a king, but that king was maybe functioning more like a mayor than anything else. And for 12 years, each of these five kings paid tribute to four more powerful kings. What these kings were doing was bullying the five smaller cities. They were making them pay so that they wouldn't destroy them. It's kind of like what we see in movies about the mafia. We're, we're coming into your business and you have to give us protection money. Give us $500 and we'll make sure that you don't get hurt. The truth is that it's them who are going to hurt the businesses. So the five kings of Sodom had been paying off these powerful kings for 12 years. And then they decided it was done. No more. They weren't going to pay. In verse 4 it says, in the 13th year they rebelled. So they'd been paying for 12 and they decided in year 13 we're done. We're not paying any more tribute. The five kings of Sodom decided to rebel, causing the four kings from the east to attack. That's what's happening in verses 1 through 4. In verse 5, it says it was the 14th year. So all of this is happening, not instantly, all of this is happening over the matter of a few years. It took a long time to go hundreds of miles. And in verse 5, we see the names listed. These were not kings that lived side by side. This was uh, not kingdoms that necessarily bordered on each other. There, there was diversity in these four powerful kings. Amraphel is in what today is modern Iraq. Uh, Kidor Laomer was in modern Iran. Arioch and Tidal in modern Turkey. These were powerful kingdoms separated by lots of space. And they had a plan. First, they would take the area east of Israel and the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt. So they were going to take east Israel uh, and then go down to the Sinai Peninsula. And then the second part of their plan is they would come up north and defeat the kings of Sodom. Kedor Omer accomplished this first objective. Verses 5 and through 7, it's hard to read because of the names, I know that. It tells us that he traveled from the border of Turkey and Syria all the way down to Damascus, and that's hundreds of miles. And then they traveled hundreds more to modern-day Israel and then to Jordan. The first group to fall was the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Kernaim. Rephaim actually literally means giants. The invading kings went after the most powerful people first, showing everyone that defeat was in their future. If they can get through these guys, if they can get through the most powerful of the, the group of five kings, they can win this whole thing. The names in verses, uh, verse 5, Zuzim and Amim, were what these giants were called by other groups. So verse 5 is one group, the strongest group, now they're fallen, defeated. The second people to fall are found in verse 6, the Horites. And if you can imagine in, in your mind the, the map of Israel and you see the, the gulf to its west, and you see Israel's kind of a sliver-shaped. Well, to the east of Israel is Jordan. 
And in the middle between that border is the Dead Sea. And a few hundred miles south is the Gulf of Aqaba. The Horites lived just east of this route. So they were defeated. So with the first two groups taken care of, the armies turned northwest, beating the Amalekites and the Amorites on the western side of the Dead Sea. They were just running over these people. The kings were being paid for 12 years, and they certainly didn't like not getting that money coming in. And so they poured out their hate and their wrath onto these people. Word would have gotten back to the kings around Sodom that the invading army had destroyed any hope that they had of of getting away. There was no escape route. There was no help coming. Everyone who could have helped them was gone. And they had nowhere to hide. If you've lived in the desert, you know that there's not many places to hide. It's flat and dirt. Hard to to run away, especially when you're an entire city or village. And so look what happens next in verse 8 through 10. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Kedorla Omer, the king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Goim, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, some fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. The armies of Sodom went out to defend their land. Verse 8 says these kings and their soldiers went out to fight. At least that's what it looks like. In the southern part of the Dead Sea, there are asphalt tar pits. And so you can even see this happening now that sometimes in the, in the, the south, southern part of the sea that these chunks of asphalt will float up to the, the top of the sea. And so scripture says there were these tar pits And in verse 10, it says the valleys were full of asphalt pits. And as the kings of these cities fled, they all fell into these pits. Now, when we read it, we may think that they just weren't paying attention to where they were running. But I think they were doing it on purpose. They knew the future that was ahead of them. They knew that these kings were really not happy with what they've done. They knew that they were going to be tortured and ultimately killed. And so... My belief is that they ran into them and committed suicide before the other side could do anything worse. Now, you may be wondering at this point, how does this flow into the story? We've read the first 13 chapters of Genesis, and we've seen these characters. We've seen all of these men come and go, and women come and go, and then we talk about Abram and Lot, and where are they now? Remember, Lot chose to live in Sodom. He's in the middle of this. Look at verses 11 and 12. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went away. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Lot chose the land around Sodom because it looked good to him. Now he's left with nothing. In 2016, if you remember, the city of Aleppo in Syria, which wasn't far from uh, uh, Kedur Omer's land, uh, was leveled. For months, by both rebels and, and government forces were launching bombs and missiles at one another and hitting civilians in the process. And the, the fighting had intensified in 2016. 
But over four years, over 30,000 people had died in that city. And you've probably seen pictures of what Aleppo looked like afterwards. It's just rubble. Where once historic buildings stood, apartments and businesses, now it's just rubble. Families were forced to flee and they left everything behind. And those who made it out, made it out with nothing but the clothes on their backs. So we don't know what Lot had experienced in Scripture. But we can guess that the people running in Lot's day were very similar to what we see on the news with Aleppo. A very sad picture of what inhumanity will do. It was a dire situation for everyone involved, and and certainly Lot, who is, is, is the subject of many of the chapters in Genesis, a dire situation. They, the army has come in. They've destroyed everything. We're having to run. We've got nothing. And then we get to verses 13 through 16. Here we see Abram's generosity. Remember that Abram settled far, uh, further away out of the path of destruction. He picked the, the better place. It was, it was safer for him. He wasn't the victim of these armies that were coming in. And so after the cities had been ransacked, someone was able to flee and run to Abram and to tell him what was going on. Abram could have said this, you got what you deserved, you pagan city. You people who ignore everything that God has told you, you could have saved yourself, but you chose not to. You chose to indulge in all of those bad things. Lot, you could have picked a better place. You could have picked over here. But instead, you chose Sodom. Now you get what you deserve. But look at what he does in verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abram could have done nothing, and no one outside of Sodom would have blamed him one bit. It's not a difficult scene to picture. A scared person from Sodom makes it out alive, runs the 20 miles or so to get to Abram's camp, and with the last bit of energy, he says, we are running scared. The armies have come, and they've ransacked our town. Now, the text doesn't tell us what's going on in Abram's mind at this point, and it doesn't tell us how long it took him to make his decision, but we can assume that he wasn't really happy. For one, Lot was his nephew, so no matter how many headaches your family causes you, they are still your family, and you, many of you know this, that your children, your brothers, your sisters, your mother, your father, they could cause you all sorts of headache, but when push comes to shove, you're going to be there for them. And so Abram has that. The second thing is is that we've seen Abram return to proper worship of God. And we know that when we properly worship God and we, we see God appropriately and correctly, it'll lead to us acting and living appropriately and correctly. Especially when we see abuse or injustice. And the truth of the matter is, these kings who had been bullying Sodom for so many years, it wasn't justice that they were after. They were after revenge. They were angry. Abram saw that justice was not given. And so when he had heard that Lot had been taken captive, he knew that something had to be done. But what? What could Abram and 318 men do against an army? Well, what we see happening here is a lot like what we see in those movies. No person, 
No person who's thinking clearly desires to go run out on a battlefield. Now, the adrenaline might start pumping and push us forward, and there are some of those guys who just like to fight. We get that. But every time I watch one of those films, I put myself in their position, and I say, what would I do? I'm turning and running. It's because no one wants to run out on the battlefield knowing that the chance of your survival is slim, especially when you're outnumbered. And so all of the, the generals and the leaders in these movies and in these stories, all of them, they, they have this inner turmoil, don't they? Well, we know that some people are going to die. We know that my decision is a big one and that people's lives are in my hands. It's a weight that most of us couldn't bear, but when war is necessary, those decisions must be made. And I'm sure that Abram weighed all this in his mind, and he, he probably thought, well, I know that something needs to be done, but I don't want to die, and I don't want these people to die either. But he made the decision. In verse 14, it says, he gathered the 318 men who were his servants or his slaves and went after those who attacked Sodom. Now, Dan was over 100 miles from where Abram was. So the nerves inside of these men who were about to fight had plenty of time to think and to, to stir up. And verse 15 says that Abram and his men caught the four kings and they defeated them. Now, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I believe that Scripture is all that we need for life and salvation. I, I believe that, that, that all of this is, is all that God wanted us to have, 100%. But all that the text says is this. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Really? That's it? No, no details of, of the, the slaying, no details of the action, of the battle sequences? This is where Tolkien and the Bible certainly have a difference of, of take on battles. And something else that I've noticed in this is not only the lack of details of the battle, because I don't think that's the main point. But something else that I notice here is that the main point is what this is focusing on. The main point is to get us to continue to see Jesus at every turn. Think about it. What did Abram do for Lot? He went after his nephew who was in captivity. He didn't let him sit there. He didn't let him stay in captivity, even though that's what he deserved. Abram went after Lot. In Luke 15, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled about Jesus eating with sinners. Jesus gave this parable. He says this. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Christian, this is a picture of what God has done for you. This is a picture where Abram chased down Lot. God has chased you down. God has come after you. The fact is that Jesus has come to live with us, but it goes beyond that. Your salvation is because God pursued you. 
Heaven rejoiced when you were brought back to God through repentance and faith. And as we've seen already, Abram is a picture of the Redeemer who would come to save his brothers from what they truly deserved. And the truth is, if you're not a Christian, you may not understand the enormity or the grandeur of this kind of love. God loved his creation even though we've all rebelled against him. And he sent his son Jesus to suffer and to die in our place. We earned the punishment and Jesus took it instead. John 3.16 says this happens so that anyone who believes in Jesus will not die but have eternal life. This doesn't mean that you will not die a physical death. You will. That's a, a, a symptom of sin in this world that we're all infected with. The promise that Jesus makes is that you will not have to suffer the wrath of God, that Jesus has already taken that for you. That all of the the penalty that you and I earned was on the shoulders of Christ on the cross. The promise that Jesus gives is 100% undeserved. We don't deserve it, but the glory of God is he's given it to us. Just like what Lot got from Abraham was undeserved. Abram showed grace again to Lot, and it's a picture of what Jesus does for sinners. Abram was able to defeat the kings because he believed that God's promises would remain. Abram was saved like we are. He trusted and obeyed and believed, and he had faith. So after Abram and his men defeat the four kings, they return. And you can picture this happening. They're bringing back all the people and all the possessions. Abram was a hero. Most of us would want to bask in that. I want a parade. I I want people screaming and, and yelling, yes, Ryan, yes. Who doesn't? He could have walked into the towns and said, ha, ha, I did it. I led these men. I led them into battle. I defeated these people. He could have ruled the nations with his authority and power. He could have said, hey, it's God's promise to me. Look at what verses 17 through 20 say what happened next, though. After his return from the defeat of Kidilor Omer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So picture this, that Abram's coming up. When they see him, these two kings come out and they come to meet Abraham. Now, Melchizedek is the king of Salem, and and so Salem is Jerusalem. That's what you need to know. So Melchizedek is is the king and the priest of Jerusalem. He's a really important figure in biblical history. He was priest and he was king. He was a Canaanite, just like the king of Sodom. He was from the cursed line of Ham. But Melchizedek believed in the one true God. He was not a Jew like Abram, but he believed Melchizedek is instrumental in the unfolding narrative of the gospel. From David all the way to Christ, the unfolding of the the priest and king is so vitally important. So Melchizedek, priest-king, brings out bread and wine for Abram. The second thing he does is he gives a blessing. Now flip back to chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. In these verses, God promises Abram that he will make him a great nation and that his name will be 
and that he will be a blessing. All the families of the earth will be blessed, including Melchizedek. The king of Sodom didn't understand this, but Melchizedek did. Abram rescued the people from the four kings. Abram traveled the long distance to fight and, and defeat the invading army. Abram bought back the people and the possessions. Abram had every right to say, oh, that's mine, guys. To the victor goes the spoils. But did you notice what the king of Sodom says? Give me the persons. Take the goods for yourself. You, you just give me my people back, but you can take all the goods. Melchizedek did not say that. Instead, Melchizedek didn't demand anything. He brought out a feast. He, he said, here, eat. You're hungry. Eat. Let's celebrate. Here is, is something that I can give to you. Look at verses 21 through 24. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Genesis 14 is the only historical mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. But then about a thousand years later, his name comes up again. David writes in Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David was declaring that God was going to do something great, that he would bring a, a great high priest Similar to Melchizedek, but this new high priest's reign would be forever. Now to understand this, look to Hebrews chapter 7. This is the understanding of the significance of Melchizedek. It says this, verses 1 through 3 of Hebrews 7. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Melchizedek is a foreshadow of Christ. He was a priest king, something that no Levitical priest could ever be. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, and king of Salem means king of peace. Getting clearer, isn't it? You see the connections between Melchizedek and Jesus? Hebrews 7.3 says that Melchizedek was without father or mother. And so you say, wait a minute, hold on. Does that mean that he's an angel? Maybe he's some apparition of Christ? No. It just says that he had no family history. The priest of the day had to have that priestly line. Melchizedek had none. And when you take a look at the line of Jesus, where are those? Prostitutes, right? Sinners. No, no, no one of a claim. No, no, no one that can that can claim a, a priestly lineage. Jesus had no beginning or end. Melchizedek is is a human being, but he's a blip on the screen in terms of of the story of Christ. He, he's not there for very long. 
There's not much written about him, but the writer of Hebrews is clearly showing that Melchizedek is vitally important because it shows that the coming Messiah is going to be like Melchizedek, but only infinitely better. Hebrews 7 again, verses 4 through 10. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they're also a descendant from Abraham. But this man who does not have a descendant from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. When Abram returned from defeating the four kings, he gave Melchizedek a tithe of everything that he had. First fruits, the best of the best. Abram was the victor. Abram did all the work, but he recognized that he was in the presence of someone even greater. Not because Melchizedek was a better person than Abram, not because Melchizedek did better or did more, but because Abram knew that it pointed to something better. Some would say that this was normal. You you may say, well, all the priests collected tithes. So the writers of Hebrews says this, All the descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham. Melchizedek had no tithes. And yet Abraham, or Abram, still gave him the money, gave him the the spoils of the victory, an offering. The other priests received tithes because it was part of God's law didn't matter who the priest was, but Melchizedek was not descendant from a long line of priests. Melchizedek's stature actually came from the blessing that Abraham gave him. Now, there's a lot to take in. And, and the truth of the matter is that this could have been spread out over many sermons. But here's the point in all of this, and it's a simple point. You may read this and say, where, where are you going with this? There's a simple point. Abram worshipped God, and his hope was in the Messiah who would come. Melchizedek was not that Messiah, but God used Melchizedek to point us to Christ. And all throughout the Bible, we've seen this in 14 chapters of Genesis, what we're seeing is God unfolding his story and pointing us at every turn. He's screaming, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. And it's so clear once you see this story as it opens and opens a little more. Turn to the one that the Bible is all about. Melchizedek was seen as righteous and so was Abraham, but not because of what they've done. You may be seen as righteous, but it's not because of what you've done. Your righteousness and my righteousness, I've done everything I can to rid myself of it. But your righteousness and my righteousness comes only from the righteousness of Christ. It's been given to us when we trust in him and we repent of our sin. It's only through faith that we can receive this exchange where Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his perfection, his spotless righteousness. Melchizedek can't do this. Abram can't do this. You can't do this. I can't do this. But Jesus does. And he promises it to all who believe in him and have faith that your sins are wiped clean. 
and the promise of everlasting life and a new vision and a new heart and a new hope is given to you. And your slate is clean. Would you pray with me?